0: Well, I want to add one thing to the men. That's the men's, uh, the king's men a week from tomorrow. We're actually going to be Zooming with the author of the book that we're going through. And he's an older seasoned saint. He's a dean at a a theological seminary. He's just written several books. So Don Whitney is going to actually Zoom with us. He was going to come out, but it was too much for him at his age. So you guys on a week from tomorrow... He'll be doing that with us, and he's going to take the topic of stewardship of your time and stewardship of your money. So those are the two most challenging things in all of life, I think, as far as stewarding them. So with that, would you stand? We're going to look at Mark 11, 12 through 26. i want to read that passage, do a responsive reading, and then we'll get in the Word as we always do. So Mark 11 and verse 12. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again, and his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem, then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to him, Have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, But believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Some deep stuff here. Now, a response of reading Psalm 119, we're up to verse 65 of these eight-verse stanzas. So I'll read verse 65 and the odd ones if you will respond by reading 66 and the even verses. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So let's pray. So Lord, just just looking at this, before I was afflicted, I went astray. It's good that I've been afflicted, that I may keep learn your statutes. And Lord. Life is not just this sort of on the cloud with a harp. It's, it's a difficult road that we walk in taking up our, denying ourselves, taking up our cross to follow you. But Lord, that's exactly what we are going to do. I asked this morning that you would speak to us. Some of these things are, are hard to hear and hard to sort of assimilate and digest and apply. By your Holy Spirit, I pray the things that I've prepared, break them fresh, feed us. Help me, Lord, to communicate to your people the things that are in your heart from your word this morning. The things, Lord, that we don't know, teach us. The things that we need, Lord, by your grace and mercy, give them to us, and Lord, change us. Make us more and more like you. When we walk out of this room today, that you've spoken to us, truly God's among us, and that by these things in your word, you can do the things you want to accomplish for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. You can be seated. So I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles open and follow along in the main text as we study these verses in Mark chapter 11. All the other scriptures I'll put on on the screen, and I usually load it up, which I think is important for all of us. I don't Usually never get through all of them, but they're here on my notes. So if you want my notes, just email me and I'll send them to you. And I'm happy to do that. In Mark chapter 11, verse 12, it says, Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. The next day is following Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we studied back on April 2nd in celebrating Palm Sunday as a church. Behold, your king is coming. So I would refer you to that for those verses. So in verse 9, it says there, Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This amazing prophetic quoted that Mark quoted from Psalm 118, verse 11. And Jesus went into Jerusalem, into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things... As the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, the next day. So, here's what's happening. In Mark 11, we arrive at the last week of Jesus' earthly life before his death on the cross. In the first 26 verses, Mark walks us through just three days of, those, of that week. So, day one, verses 1 through 11, he entered into the city In triumph, and into the temple with grief, as we'll see today. He looked around at all things, and then stayed the night in Bethany. Day number two begins at verse 12. In the morning, he and his disciples returned to the city, and as they did, Jesus cursed the fig tree. They then, verses 15 through 19, entered the city and then the temple, and Jesus' authority goes into action. Then, again, then they left the city and presumably went back to Bethany about two miles away. Then day three, verses 21 through 26 that we're looking at this morning, he returned to Jerusalem. On the way, his disciples saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Jesus teaches them in the presence of this withered fig tree. So I want you to note a couple things. These last visits to Jerusalem were, first of all, planned. They were prophesied in the scriptures. They were also solemn, a solemn week. As Jesus said, My soul is troubled even unto death. And that was beginning to loom over the disciples and himself. He was going to pour his soul out unto death. He knew what he was facing. So there are solemn days, even even the death of the cross. And these few days were also foreboding with judgment. Not only was Jesus going to take our judgment, but when we consider what happened, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him, saying, we will not have this man rule over us. That was what happened. After the whole triumphal entry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, not too soon after they're turned against him to crucify him at the biddings of the religious leaders. And so it's foreboding in judgment. G. Campbell Morgan said this: quote: This was not merely the hour when his nation rejected him. It was the hour when he finally rejected the nation, unquote. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 43. Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. So there's this looming judgment, darkness. Now, it is in this context that Jesus said, Have faith in God. This is the context of it. I would identify this as the key to Jesus' instruction. Of his disciples, then, and two thousand plus years later, to us this morning, have faith in God. Amen. And so, now I may be wearing some of you out, <laughs> who have heard me mention this many times, but I want you to—I want to wear you out until you watch it, and that is this. Uh, message from Jim Symbola called my house should be called a house of prayer. If you have your phones and haven't seen it, take a picture and watch it. It's prophetic. It was made in 1994. He preached it in 1994. I saw it probably about 1997 or 8 as a video at a conference where there was a senior pastor that was going to teach. And getting up there, he said, you know what, I saw this, this video and I'm going to put my message aside. You've got to watch it. It was a life changer, a game changer in my whole understanding of the power of prayer. And how important it is. And what God does through prayer. So I hope that you'll watch that. And then you'll understand my huh, rapidity, if you will, on watching it. You got to watch it, okay? I'm not going to take a show of hands, okay? So this morning, here's my outline of this, if it helps. The disciple and having faith in God. Number one, faith in God bears fruit. It's faith in God that bears fruit. Secondly, faith in God believes in prayer. We believe in prayer. Not only do we believe in prayer, we believe in prayer and the power of that. And then finally, faith in God forgives anyone. Now that's a tough bullet point. Faith in God forgives anyone. So, verse 12, the end, he was hungry and seeing the fig from afar a fig tree having leaves he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it when he came to it he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs in response jesus said to it let no one eat fruit from you ever again and his disciples heard it they're hearing something that's a little different these verses have brought much debate among scholars One said that this was, quote, one of the most perplexing stories in the Bible. Again, G. Campbell Morgan said, quote, There are elements in it which have persistently caused difficult to expositors, and that quite naturally. Cursing and destruction were not usual methods of Jesus, unquote. Why was Jesus using his power to destroy now, there is the account of his destruction of the swine. You remember that in Mark chapter 5. But the act was linked to the deliverance of a man from demonic possession. So there was, yes, there was that the, the destruction of the pigs, but there's also the deliverance of the, of the person who was de- demon possessed. This is the only time Jesus exercised his power to wholly destroy. Now, in Matthew, he tells us the fig tree was by the road, which would seem to say it was not private property and no person suffered from its loss. So that may help in understanding sort of the the context of what's going on here. Now, I want to stop just a note here a moment. Those who want to attack Jesus will always make up something to attack. That's what will happen. They will ignore all the good that Jesus always did to focus on all the bad that he never did. We find that, and that's part of the atmosphere. They hated him. So talk about having eyes but not seeing, which was what he was speaking to them. Jesus said, is your eye evil because I am good? In context of this one time, commentary Commentator Trench said, quote, Jesus' miracles of mercy were numberless and on men. His miracles of judgment was but one and on a tree, unquote. So, again, a personal note, a heart check. How quickly we ourselves can criticize and point out the flaws of others. and At the same time, how easily we overlook our own. Jesus put it this way. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know how I see this? I got this two-by-four sticking out of my eye and I'm trying to help my brother get the speck out of his eye. Poop, Get rid of the plank. Get rid of the beam. It's, it's hyperbole, but what he's saying is here, we have much more to get out of our eyes than one person has to get out of their eye. And often how we see things sort of puts us in the good light and, and someone else in the bad light. We're always, in a sense, doing that in our sinful, fallen heart. We need God's help. Would you say amen to that? We need to take Jesus' word here, applying it to what we're talking about this morning as far as having faith in God and ask him to help us to do the things and look at things the way that he sees them. So why did Jesus curse the fruitless fig tree when it was not the season for figs? Some suggest that the early figs, not yet ripe, should have been there but were not. Others suggest that some figs remained on the tree from the last season, and this is what Jesus expected to find and didn't. It's my belief that this is a solemn lesson to the Jewish nation. A symbolic miracle, if you will. As one commentator wrote, the tree was a symbol, but the nation was in his mind. Now, why do I believe that? Israel is symbolized by the fig tree several times in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah, twice in Hosea, in Nahum, and in Zechariah. Fig tree used is a dramatic prophetic sign of Israel's spiritual barrenness. As Bible Knowledge Commentary says, quote, the promising but unproductive fig tree symbolized Israel's spiritual barrenness. Now notice, despite divine favor, and this really struck me when I read it, and the impressive outward appearance of their religion, unquote. It was impressive. They had an impressive temple. They had all these things arranged and working seamlessly in that sense of priests and people serving them and the courtyard and all those things. It was impressive, but it was empty of anything that God was looking for. So this is, well, in Jeremiah, he wrote, I will surely consume them, says the Lord. No grape shall be on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the things I have given them shall pass away from them. And there, are, there are numerous times when God is calling them to judgment in the Old Testament by using the fig tree as an example. Jesus did the same thing in parables. So this is not an angry action because Jesus was hungry. Now that would be us, Maybe. You know, it's like going up to McDonald's at 5 o'clock in the morning. And they're supposed to be open. They say, well, we're not going to open until 6. So I just calmly drive away. (laughs) Hunger can have that reaction. It's interesting. He was hungry, yes, but he was in the wilderness for 40 days fasting. And then the devil came to him and tempted him three times. Hungry. You bet he was hungry. Was he lacking what was necessary to withstand the the, attacks of the devil? Not at all. He is victorious. And so here it's not that he's angry because he was hungry. I believe it's a dramatic prophetic sign of God's impending judgment on Israel. God commanded Jeremiah to break the potter's vessel, destroy it. It was a symbolic warning to the people of Judah, much the same way. So why should Jesus not destroy a fig tree to teach a solemn lesson? Could it be that the strangeness of it was to draw attention to it? I believe that's the case. Jesus looking for fruit but finds only corruption, no fruit. And he had been talking to them several times about the corruption and the unbelief that they were, these religious leaders and their religiosity were perpetrating on God's people. He continually spoke about this corruption. He directly challenged the leaders and they hated him for it. Verse 18, they hated him. The scribes and chief priests heard it and saw that they might destroy him. He's destroying a a fig tree for a solemn Judgment, lesson, whatever. They're wanting to destroy him. And that was ongoing and building. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out to the city. In other words, it was not safe for Jesus to stay in Jerusalem. He never did in this final week. It was not safe then. It was never safe because of what was going on. But when his hour had come, when it was time for him to go to Jerusalem he went to be sacrificed he went as a lamb to the slaughter he went to lay down his life for you and for me on the cross he wasn't afraid of those things he was bearing those things in this last week in a way that he had never before. He did that. He laid down his life for you, for me, and for the whole world. John 3, 16, would you say it with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Have faith in God. Is your faith in God? Is it in the gospel? Is it in John 3, 60? Because God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light so they didn't come to the light, that their deeds might be seen for what God, how God sees them. Have faith in God. Preach the gospel to yourself every day and know that this is the basis Of everything else, any fruit, anything that's going to come out of my life, is because he saved me in my sin and wretchedness and set me up straight, straightened out, filled me with his spirit and said, now let me do the work I want to do in your life for the glory of God and for the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So they came to Jerusalem, verse 15. 15. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. Now, as if you watch that video, I've seen it, Jim Symbolist, this is, this is like Striking. Here's Jesus, and he's just made this whip up in this court, and he's going through this courtyard, driving them all out, saying, Out of here! He cleansed the temple during his first Passover visit in John chapter 2. It was not long, though, before the religious leaders allowed the money changers and merchants to return. Now, there were four courts in the temple. But it was the large court of the Gentiles, the place where non-believers could come to worship, where Jesus began driving them out because it was a place where, God, where people from all races could come to seek God. So this whole, this whole courtyard. The building itself was not Jesus' concern. He'll talk about that. He, he did talk about that, but we'll, in Matthew chapter 20, they, well, what's going to happen to the temple? Let me tell you what's going to happen to the temple. You look at it as being this incredible thing. It is an incredible thing, but one stone is not going to be left on another because of the judgment of God on Israel. He's not here. It's not The building itself was not his concern. What was going on in the building, in the courtyards, was what he is addressing. Israel's religious system had failed. And their religious leaders were beyond corrupt. In verse 15, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. The Roman and Greek coinage had human portraits on it, and so they considered it idolatrous. Caesar, whoever it was. An exchange was required, a surcharge was permitted. That became nothing short of the extortion of those who had come to worship God. They're making big bucks in the courtyard, the temple. They were making merchandise of people. The priests received their cut, they got their share. They profited from it, the priests. it just reminds me again and i can just picture my pastor chuck smith when he talk about these things and you have these charlatans on tv making incredible money through people who are hungry for god i've heard on several occasions I'm so glad you don't pass an offering plate. And we haven't. I'm not saying that passing is, I think you, we, we could do that and it would be to the worshiping of God. And many churches do, even Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa did that. But the whole understanding of what happens in the minds of people when it comes to money and the church there's been so many, so many charlatans, so many p- these leaders taking advantage of people and milking them for their money. And then they live in mansions and they might have two or three of them that they travel around in their jets to visit. God help us. These money changes, the temple was the fir- perfect place to make a buck. People are hungry for God. He even mentions those who sold the doves, which draws special attention to those that would be taken advantage of who were poor. When when Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple, what they had Two turtle doves. It was for the poor. God provided for the poor, and yet they were taking advantage of that. Now, here's an interesting fact, an important fact. These money changers, were known to be so corrupt that their testimonies were refused in the courts of law. He would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. People loaded with merchandise were taking shortcuts by going through the temple courts because it covered so much property. It became a clamorous, noisy thoroughfare From one part, to get from one part of the city to the next, this courtyard, that courtyard we had up there. They're taking, it's a shortcut. So in a sense, it it made that temple no different than the world around it. Trampling through, noisy, wares, business. Beware of worldly religion Easy religion, giving you shortcuts to make your life easier, to make your life, you more rich. A shortcut that says you can make all your dreams come true. And they're usually pointing to material things. Beware of religion that's all about you or me. Beware of teaching that has this awful stench of self. Where is the message of the cross? Where is the message of self denial? Where is the message of crucifying the flesh with his affectionate Where's that message? Where's the message of this militancy against self indulgence? You see, when Jesus talked to his disciples, he would follow up to let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow. Man, our flesh hates that. The flesh lusts against the spirit, spirit against the flesh. And there's this battle that goes on. Our flesh wants to be noticed. Our flesh wants to be paraded. Our flesh wants to be promoted. The worldly things can so attack faith in God. He says, you made it a den of thieves. In other words, it's a place where thieves run to hide. Interesting scripture in Jeremiah 711. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. Now, you might be looking at it one way, but I'll tell you, I've seen it. I see it. God sees all things. All things are naked and open before the eyes of him to whom must give account. So Warren Wiersbe said, quote, the religious market was set up in the court of the Gentiles, the one place where the Jews should have been busy doing serious missionary work, unquote. I thought, wow, that's what, a, what a great quote. What should have been happening there was not. And what should not have been happening there was happening grossly. The religious, the, their religion had become a lucrative business and a refuge for crass Fraudulent workers. You now, in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree (verse 20) dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to Jesus, "Rabbi, look! The fig tree which you cursed has withered away." He went, "Wow! What? Whoa! whoa that's that's incredible! I mean, we just cut down a bunch of trees probably what a month ago, and they all got cut down and lying on our on our lawn, and they were green for a while. Now they're all kind of..." Dead. <laughs> well, this is the next oh, look what happened? Woo! How'd you do that? Woo. The fig tree which you cursed has withered away. I believe again it's a sober warning of coming judgment on the nation. Because the heart of the nation, God himself, had been rejected. The nation would be rejected because they rejected Jesus as Messiah, verses 1 through 11. Behold, your king comes. Blessed you come. They rejected him, not soon after. The nation would be rejected because they rejected Jesus as priest. This is my house. My house should be called a house of prayer. Our great and forever high priest that we studied in Hebrews a year or so ago. They rejected that. They were the priests. And they had the authority. And they had the control. And they were making a pretty good salary. They rejected Jesus as Lord. And we'll get this in verses 27 through 33. By what authority do you do these things? Who do you think you are, Jesus? Rejected as Messiah, as priest, and as Lord. Therefore... Because of this, Jesus became, was their judge. And that's what we see in these scriptures, as well as ones following. We'll look at those as we get to them. Chapter 12, both ends of chapter 12. He became their judge. And listen, he is the judge and will be the judge of all people. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ as believers. And thank God that is not, has nothing to do with our salvation. Rather, it has to do with our sanctification in obeying God and serving God and making something of our lives in, in doing the things he's called us to do as we talked about last week. So Jesus in response, verse 14 said, let no one eat fruit from you ever again and his disciples heard it. So this, it begins with unbelief and then blindness, and then hardness, and then fruitless. And that's what they went through. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus said, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As is written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The hypocrites being the religious leaders of the Jews. He didn't have a whole lot of good things to say to them. When one came individually to him in sincerity, oh, he's right there for them but this is a judgment. So number one, faith in God bears fruit. Secondly, faith in God believes in prayer, verse 22. He answers to them, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Wow, that sounds like great. But he did not say, whoever says to this fig tree, whoever says to this mountain. You see, a mountain was a very familiar figure of speech that meant an insurmountable problem, an obstacle. And to say say the mountain be removed is to say, pray, remove these difficulties, remove these obstacles, remove these problems. You see, this is not a subjective lesson in how to create your own reality. It's not that. It's not a so-called spiritual lesson on faith in faith. The word of faith movement would put it this way, just say it and it's yours. You've been given the divine right to prosper in all areas of life. So just say it, it's yours. Whether it's finances, money, health, relationships, just say the word, but don't say the wrong word. Don't say the negative word. Just say the words that will change your life. It's a t- title of a book by Joel Osteen. Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen, Joyce Myers, and, and others. They would never admit it. But here's what they're doing. They fashioned their God, small g, into a cosmic bellhop. As though God is at my bidding. As though God is at what I, have, what I say he has to do. That is not what Jesus is teaching. Far from it. It's a solemn lesson on having faith in God. And faith in God bears fruit, believes in prayer, and forgives anyone. And I look at that and go, Lord, I need help. My prayer is remove the obstacles to these things being true in my life. That there's genuine fruit in my life. That there's a prayer life that's vibrant because I believe God, I trust God, I'm praying to God, and whatever his will is what I want done, not mine. Yeah, I need help. Lord. These are obstacles, these can be mountains at times, that I just can't seem to scale at all. Lord, you've got to help me. So when I'm asking God for these kinds of things, to bear fruit, to believe in prayer, to forgive anyone, and I think this last one, we'll get that in a minute, I think that last one is probably the greatest test of my real faith in God, forgiveness. You see, this is an object lesson of for our faith, that trust God and put all my confidence in God. We do not need faith to throw around mountains. What's the point in moving Mount Rainier? I mean, where are you going to put it? It would wreak havoc in the Puget Sound. You think that traffic is bad now? Imagine having to reroute and rebuild the floating bridges. Now, had Jesus caused figs to appear, would the lesson have been the same? Not at all. He could have said, for assured I say to you, whatever you say to this fig tree, whoever you say, say to this fig tree, be full of figs, and ripe ones at that, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will come to pass. Same lesson, not at all. He's talking, he didn't say fig, he said mountain. I believe that this is not only a solemn lesson to the nation Israel, but to all who would call themselves the people of God. Have faith in God. It's the only way you'll bear fruit. It's the only way you'll be leaving in prayer. The only way we'll be forgiving anyone It's putting our faith in God, our relationship with him. And see, when a genuine faith in God perishes, the possibility of fruitfulness withers away with it. That's the truth. How many people do you know that have drifted or walked right away from faith in God? And what happens? Jesus is telling his disciples not the secret of destroying fig trees, but the lesson of so living that their faith in God is not destroyed. Help us, Lord. Beware of religious systems that are apart from Jesus' only Savior. Run from systems that are apart from Jesus as the only great and forever high priest. Run from that and run to God. Run to his word. Run from those who would say that Jesus is not Lord, he's not king of kings, he's not coming again. Run. And run to God in faith. We need faith in believing, obedience, that trusts and relies on God for everything. What do you need this morning? What's going on in your life? What are the insurmountables? What are the mountains? God's saying, you talk to me about it. You pray to me about it. You come in the right attitude and the right heart. You let me take care of that for you. We need faith to remove spiritual mountains from our personal walks with God. Oh, how we need faith. Faith in God. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. I believe in the context, that is what he is saying to his disciples. We need faith that prayerfully overcomes the mountains of our sin and our self. We need prayer, faith that prayerfully overcomes the cares and the problems and the worries. Jesus said, why are you worrying? Don't worry about it. I got you. I'll take care of you. I'll watch over you. And maybe this morning, one of those cares, those cares of this world has got you beaten. It looks like a mountain. Jesus said, Pray. Come to God. Come in faith to God. See, when that happens, and it's happened in all of our lives to some degree and at different points, greater degrees, where we have these insurmountable things going on in our lives, and we might run here, there, and everywhere for looking for answers, but when we finally run to God in prayer, we realize that's where I should have come First. Have faith in God. Come to him. So Jesus said this in John 15, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because the word I've spoken to you. It's not talking about salvation. You're already clean. You've received the gospel. You received him as savior. Abide in me now is the thing that's needed. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, neither can you unless you abide in me. It's staying steady in relationship with him, looking to him, abiding in him. It means just stay there, stay there. I like the song, hey, keep it up, keep going. Don't stop. It's Jesus that we need. It's our relationship with God that we need. It's faith in God that Jesus is pointing out. So he said to them, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. What is Jesus doing? He's saying to his disciples, I want to have such an intimate relationship with you that I'm your first stop and your last stop. I want you to come to me and abide in me and talk to me and pray and trust me. I'm the great high priest, the Lord of Lords, Savior of your life. I want you to come to me. And that relationship with me is the place in which we have faith in God. I'll tell you, the older I get, the more simple it seems. I need you how I need you. Every hour, I need you. He says there, I am the vine, you are the branches, he abides in me, and I in him bears much fruit. And then he says this statement that we all try and prove to be false. For without me, you can do nothing. I believe in Spanish, it's nada. Stand with me as the worship team comes out. Let's take our hearts to God in these matters. Faith in God bears fruit. Lord, I'm looking to you. Faith in God believes in prayer. Lord, I'm talking to you. I'm coming to you. I'm crying out to you. And then that last one where Jesus leaves off there. (laughs) I love this story. In a book called A Forgiving God and Unforgiving World, Ron Lee Davis retells the story of a priest in the Philippines, a much loved man of God who carried the burden of a secret sin he had committed many years before. He had repented but still had no peace, no sense of God's forgiveness. In his parish was a woman who deeply loved God and who claimed to have visions in which she spoke with Christ and he with her. The priest, however, was skeptical. So to test her, he said, the next time you speak with Christ, I want you to ask him what sin your priest committed while he was in in seminary. The woman agreed. A few days later, the priest asked, well, did Christ visit you in your dreams? Yes, he did. She replied, and did you ask him what sin I committed in seminary? Yes. Well, what did he say? He said, I don't remember. As far as the east is from the west, so far has removed our transgressions from us. Throws them behind his back. In the depths of the sea, when Jesus went to the cross, he paid the price and through repentance and coming to God and crying out to God for forgiveness, he forgets in that sense. And so Jesus then tells his parable about, and what he said is Peter came to him saying, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? I forgive him. Seven times? Peter's going, seven times. I've been counting, I'm on number six, one more time. He comes to me one more time, okay, then I'm done. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. In other words, stop counting. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that's insurmountable in and of myself. So this forgiveness thing, where God forgives us, we forgive and he tells that whole parable about the the guy that had a great debt forgiven because he begged the master. Then he goes out and finds a servant who has a really small debt and he's choking. Him and saying, pay me what you owe, pay me what you owe. And the whole picture that Jesus is giving is how much has God forgiven you? Ought we not to forgive others? And that's what Jesus said in the last couple of verses. If you don't forgive your brother his sins, neither will the heavenly Father forgive you. Why? Because there's unforgiveness in my heart. So maybe that's the area as we... You can go ahead. Let's do this. Are you doing...